If you guys would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Um, before I get into this, I, I do want to reiterate too, if you call this your home church, we really would love to have you guys at the family meeting tonight. Um, we try our best to not make it all informative. We really do want it to be a time where we kind of like bear our heart as far as the church, where we're at, where we're headed, what things we're working on. And then also we want you guys to be able to kind of see how things function, how our budget operates, where money is going, what money's come in. I mean, we, we want to keep that before you guys. And so um, we really appreciate and value the opportunity to just be transparent with those things with our church. And so if you can be there tonight, I would highly encourage you to be there. How many of you were here last week? Nice, and the week before. And you still came back. I'm so stinking proud of you guys. You're waiting for us to get out of Matthew 5 and 6. Um, anyway, we've been in this, the middle of the series of messages where we've been talking through the book of Matthew, specifically in the last several weeks, um, we've been talking through the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, preached by Jesus. Uh, a sermon that Jesus preached on the side of this hill on the northernmost most shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, he stood on the side of this hilltop. He gathered his disciples. There were others standing around him, and he began to teach uh, the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and all these, the salt and the light. And then we get into the series of messages that we've been talking about, about Jesus wasn't, uh, Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And then he talks about anger, he talks about lust, he talks about divorce. And last week we prefaced the divorce conversation. Once we get later into the book of Matthew, we'll actually come back and probably talk about that a little more extensively. But as we work through the life of Jesus, we'll eventually get to Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, it's important for us to understand that it was God's way of confirming everything that Jesus said about himself as being true. The resurrection was like the cherry on top. What I told you I would do, I did. And then he sends his son and his son dies and he raises again. And Jesus in fact said on this earth, he said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And if we pursue him and if we follow him, we will find God. And the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that it's God's way of confirming that everything Jesus said about the kingdom of God that we've been talking about and about the way the people of God should live. This is the way, the truth, and the life, and that should shape the ways that we actually move ahead as his followers. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but as I've been teaching through this series and studying, I do find myself constantly convicted. I go into these weeks um, like, like this week, for instance, we're talking about oaths and, and promises. And, um, and my initial instinct as I'm reading through this is like, okay, where in my life am I not keeping my, my yes and my no? Um, and I immediately think to my kids, and it makes me think like, all right, where, where have I failed in that sense? Like, luckily, by the grace of God, he's made up for that for me. But I know on a regular basis there are times when I'm not keeping my word. And so as we work through this series, for me, um, I don't know about you, but every single week I get to the section of scripture that we're on and I'm kind of like doing an inner examination of my own heart and like, God, how am I doing uh, in this particular area in my own life? And um, as we talked about the Beatitudes a few weeks ago, um, those blessed are statements, we asked the questions like, what does it mean to mourn with those who mourn, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be people who longed for one thing. 
And I just kept thinking, man, those things are difficult for me. And, and I've had to lean in and I've had to begin to ask God, um, like, will you help me become the kind of person that you desire for me to be? And after we finished the Beatitudes, we went into this really difficult set of messages on anger and lust and divorce. And these were difficult passages to read, right? Um, last week especially. And you might remember back a few weeks ago to the portions of Jesus' sermon where he says, you've heard, that it, you've heard it said you shall not commit murder, but if, you're even, if you even utter an angry word, if your heart is turned against someone, it's as if you've murdered them. And we as a church really had to think through in, in that week, like, is my heart pressed in in a posture of love, or am I like secretly murdering people with my words and my deeds and spirit? Like, where is our heart at in the midst of this? And um, the, the last two weeks, we were challenged to think about even our sexuality and how do we live? Because the Old Testament says, as Jesus reminds us, you should not commit adultery, but if you even lust in your heart, you're abusing the people around you. You're objectifying the people around you. You're reducing people to things. And what does it mean to actually pursue relationships in our lives with integrity and purity and love and flourishing instead? And then last week, again, we contemplated divorce and the fact that Jesus' intention in that passage was not to rail on divorce per se, but rather to magnify marriage. Um, so many of us have devoted our lives to making sure we know what not to do. And um, so much so that we miss what Jesus actually stood for. And it was just all about like what he was against oftentimes in churches. Like we talk about Jesus said no to this, said no to this, and so we formulate our lives based on what we shouldn't do. And unfortunately, we use the Bible often to set up these parameters of what we can't do instead of the Bible being used to help us understand how to flourish as his people. Um, does anybody in here garden? I, I do not garden. You probably know a lot more than I do. But as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking in relation to gardening, it's not all about just getting rid of the weeds and making sure the bugs don't eat the plants or just protecting the, the plants from disease. I mean, that's a portion of caring for your garden, but it's also about what? Watering the plants. It's also about what? Making sure that the plants are placed in sunlight so they can actually flourish and develop and be green and lush. And sometimes we need to sit back and we need to repent for the things we've allowed in. But more than that, we actually need to lean into God. And we need to feed from his word. We need to spend some time with him. We need to know what it is that God is for, not just what God is against. And so I'm going to invite us to pray together as we get started this morning uh, to prepare our hearts for how God might call us this morning to himself as we lean into him. But if you guys would just bow your heads with me, and as we enter into this time of prayer, ask Jesus to just do an awesome work in your heart this morning, to remind you of who he is, not to develop this list and set of standards and rules for your life, but rather, what is it he's calling you to? Who is he? Who are you in him? Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for your word. God, I just humble my heart before you, and I ask in your name, Jesus, that you allow your word to shine through me this morning. God, I pray for each of us in this room because I know all of us come from just a whole mixed bag of situations in our lives. I pray that this morning, God, we'd find one commonality in Jesus. We thank you for the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. 
Thank you for your forgiveness and your mercy for us. I pray this morning, God, that you have your way with your people. Lord, we devote this time to you. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the most terrible things that you can hear from a kid is probably something like this. But you promised. (laughs) Any parents ever heard that before? But you promised me. Uh, I don't know if any of you parents in this room have ever heard that and feel, have felt that sense of kind of failure or dread when your kid says that and you hear those words, you promised we would go do something or you're like, oh, like you feel this deep sense of, uh, of shame almost that you weren't able to do it. But um, the reason we feel bad when our kids say things like that is because promises matter. Like we actually know it Um, from something that's small, and we know that with regard to something that's larger. The reality is like when a marital vow is broken, the reason it's difficult is because there was a promise that was made, and that promise was betrayed. The, 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 The vow was reneged. And so part of what causes the heartache for us is that you promised to be faithful and richer or poorer in sickness and in health. Like how could you do this? How could you break your promise? And so promises are a very big deal. Um, At at the very personal, small level to larger level situations that sustain our families, we do know that promises matter. And it's actually true for us as a society as well. Um, I I think part of the the power of Martin Luther King's, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech when um, he gave his I Have a Dream speech was the way that he sort of invoked this this issue of promises. This is what he said. I'm just going to read you a portion of it that you've probably heard. He said, and so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. So part of the the power and part of even the problem maybe with the civil rights movement was even at the social governmental levels of of this movement, that that the promises actually do matter, that we are a people that should follow through with the things that we say we're going to do, that when our country was founded, um, MLK was arguing that there was this promise that everyone should enjoy life, that everyone should enjoy liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and we all know that that's not what we've experienced, and it's not what we continue to experience even now today in our country. But part of what drives the, the, the power of protest even back in the 1960s was the sense that we want as a country for people to actually fulfill those kind of promises. We want them to actually do what they said they were going to do because promises actually matter. And weirdly or surprisingly, promises really seem to matter to Jesus as well. Words seem to matter. And that's the passage that we come to today um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. If you guys would turn there, say word when you get there. You guys with me? Are you here? Awesome. Okay. So again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, 
but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Other translations just simply say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So why in the world is Jesus talking about promises all of the sudden as he's coming into this section? Like in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, he's been talking about like this is the character of the people of God. Like, I I long for you to be a people of character, people who who long and thirst for righteousness, who desire one thing, who have purity in their hearts. Then he talks about murder, and and we're like, yeah, that that makes sense. That's exactly what I would expect Jesus to talk about, right? And and then why, why this talk now about these vows that you make and the promises that we keep? Why is it important that our yes be yes and our no be no? And I want to kind of suggest this morning the the, the context in part here, um, Jesus has has just talked about what sexual morality looks like, Um, do not commit adultery, but don't even have lust in your heart, and then the passage in between um, uh, with with regards to adultery and lust, and, and then this, and then Jesus talks about the reality of divorce and why Moses permitted divorce and and why God grieves over it and what the conditions are um, that even may be acceptable with regards to divorce. And I think as he's thinking about marriage and the reality of lust and how marriages break down, I think Jesus sort of starts to think about, well, if we're going to talk about how marriages break down, let's actually talk about promises and the promises, the vows that we make to one another, the commitments that we make to one another and how we're actually going to live those out. And I think he's also thinking about it like in this context um, because as he's thinking about where does the Old Testament call us to one thing and where have we broken down in our inability to actually live that out, I think Jesus is thinking about these kinds of promises. That, that, that's one of the reasons this first section of the, uh, of the passage exists. He says, you know in the Old Testament, right, and in Numbers and in Exodus, uh, the, the scripture says if you make a vow before the Lord, then you follow it. And, and he says, but I'm telling you, you, you don't even make vows. And, and what was happening to the people of Israel at the time of Jesus preaching this uh, sermon is that people said, if you make a vow in the Lord's name, then you have to actually keep it. That, that's what the scripture says. They knew that. But if you say, I promise you by heaven, I'm going to do it then you're kind of off the hook because it's not God himself, it's just heaven. And so people would be like, I swear to you by Jerusalem, uh, the the holy city, that that I'll do it. Is that binding on me if I swear by Jerusalem? And and people would be like, well, it's not God's name, you're kind of off the hook as long as you don't use his name. And so part of what Jesus is saying is just don't do it. Like the simple answer that Jesus is giving is let your yes be yes. And your no be no, like your promises should be kept because you worship and follow a promise-keeping God. So why does Jesus object to people who break their promises? Like why does he object to people who can't keep their vows? Why does he want us to be people that actually do have verbal integrity in our lives? And my thought is that it's because when we don't have verbal integrity, 
when we don't keep our promises, when our yes is not yes and our no is not no, it actually distorts our discipleship on a couple different fronts. It breaks down, one, just on a personal level, um, but two, it actually breaks down on a corporate level, on a communal level with the church. Because if you have a bunch of people running around and their yes is not yes and their no is not no, what does that say about the people of God? What's the world's main accusation against us? Hypocrites. They don't actually do what, they're, what they say they're gonna do. They're not actually who they actually say they are. And so part of what was going on at this time um, by this kind of verbal game that they're playing is that they're trying to like limit the application of the Old Testament uh, command by like hemming it in with these word gymnastics that they're trying to do to try to cover up for it and get out of their yeses and their noes. Like if I make a promise to God, I have to keep it. So I'm just gonna promise to heaven, not by God, or I'm not gonna promise um, by God, I'm gonna promise by Jerusalem. And Jesus goes, do you see how ridiculous this is? Like when you promise by God's name, of course you should obey. But if you promise by heaven, whose heaven do you think that is? Who owns heaven? It's God. If you promise by the earth, whose earth do you think it is? Whose city do you think it is that you were promising to when you promised to Jerusalem. Do you think that just by language you can actually narrow the expectation that God has that we'd be a people of integrity who actually say and follow through with what we say we're gonna do? And we do this all the time. Like Think about the expert of the law who came to Jesus and he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus was asked this question. Jesus says, well, you, you know the commandments, you should love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and with a lot of boldness, the guy goes on. He says, well, I do that all the time. And Jesus goes, well, then love your neighbor as yourself. And then the man tries to narrow what Jesus is saying and what scripture commands by going like, well, Jesus, like, who is my neighbor? Like, let, let's, let's get down to the, the nuts and bolts. Who is my neighbor? And essentially, he's like, sure, I can love my neighbor as long as I get to choose my neighbor, <laughs> right? Um, I'm going to choose the fun neighbor. I'm going to choose the neighbor who never asks me for anything. I'm going to choose the neighbor that I actually really enjoy. Anybody have a neighbor you don't enjoy? It's easy to love on the one that you do, right? The the one that's fun. Like, I'm going to choose about five neighbors, and then the rest of them I don't consider neighbors because I just want the ones that I like. And so what does Jesus do when he gets this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him a story. He says, there's a man walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho who's attacked by robbers and this religious man walks past him and even though he's bleeding and hurt and another religious man walks past him even though the man's clearly suffering and then finally this despised Samaritan who has been hated on by the Jews and hates the Jews in return sees him and then shows mercy to him and then takes care of him. And then Jesus asked the question, not who is my neighbor, but who was a neighbor to that man, is what Je- how Jesus spins it. And he answers the Samaritan. And Jesus says, the question is not who is my neighbor, but who will you make a neighbor to yourself? Who will you adopt as your neighbor? And we do this all the time in other places. Like I just saw this survey recently, and the question that was asked, and it was funny, it was brought up at our steward's 
uh, meeting the other night. But the question that was asked was, when I give my offering, does that come off the gross pay or does that come off my net pay? How do I tithe? And fundamentally, we're like, I'm willing to give to Jesus, but I'd like to know just how little, how little I actually need to give to him. Tell me the bare minimum, Jesus. What's the least I have to do? And in the days that I used to work with a lot of students and youth, the question I always got was, how far can I go with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? How far can I go before it's sin? Like, how close to the line can I get? And the reality is, you see, like, fundamentally what's going on in each of these situations, who is my neighbor? Is it gross pay or is it net pay? How far can I go with my boyfriend or my girlfriend before I've actually committed a sexual sin? Like, once you've asked those kinds of questions, I honestly think you've completely missed the point of what God intended in Scripture to bless us and keep us safe. Like, that's exactly what they were doing at this time. If I swear by God, but I also swear by something else, right? Like, the, the reality is what God was commanding when he says, love your neighbors yourself, is that the world is actually our neighbor. The whole world, not who you choose, but everybody. Like, you have this responsibility to the people around you, the people who smell good and the people who smell bad, right? The, the people who are polite and the people who extremely frustrate you. The people who have resources that can offer you and the people who need something from you, that they're all our neighbors and that we're actually called to flourish in the place where God's called us to be a blessing to those around us, that all of these are your neighbors, like go and be a neighbor to them. And so when we ask these questions about giving, it shouldn't be about my, like how much I can keep for myself and how little do I actually need to give away but it's that prayer of generosity, like in a culture that tells us to keep what you can and then go grab for more. We remind ourselves that you, God, are a generous God. You, God, have been generous to us. You've invited us to give for our own flourishing and for the sake of all those, our neighbors around us. It's not how much I can give and retain for myself, it's how much have you invited me to give and give away and give some more and get like, how much do you want me to give, God? It's not a question of how far can I go before it's sin. You ask a completely different question. I, I saw this interview one time with this woman that sat on this panel and she was talking about sex and dating. And uh, she was asked this question, how far can I go? And um, and this is what she said. She said, every time a relationship moved to physical contact, the question I'd ask myself is, will my husband thank me later and bless me for what we're about to do if I don't end up marrying this guy? And she said, and I'm trying to think as I interact with my boyfriend, if we don't marry, will his wife in the future thank me for the evening that we're about to have? Like, do you see how radically different the question is? Like, it's not how far can I go, it's a question of how do I create the kind of relationship which is filled with blessing and thanks rather than regret. Like, how, how do I steward myself and this relationship so that both of us, not just now, but actually in 20, 30, 40 years, look back with gratefulness at what took place and joy with what we were a part of. 
And so the invitation from God is to create these like life-giving spaces, these spaces of flourishing. Like he's put us here to flourish and to help. And so often we use these lines to try to narrow it in. And that's what they were doing at the time. Because when you ask questions of how far can I go or how little can I give, you actually begin to distort the discipleship process because Jesus wants you to just give it all. It's all his. Whatever we get to keep is a blessing, actually. And this passage kind of seems to suggest that God's really concerned with the specific language that we use. Like if you say, by God, you're in trouble. But if you say, by heaven, then maybe he doesn't care as if it's, as if God's really that kind of like this nitpicky person, if it's, if it, as if he's like, uh, I belong to me, but heaven doesn't belong to me, right? Like he's nitpicking, like my name is important, but the earth isn't important. And so, you know, you can swear to my name, but don't swear, or you can swear to the earth, but don't swear to God. And, and the, the entire universe is God's, like it's his. Even the hairs on your head, Jesus seems to, to say like belong to God, like you can dye them all you want, but you can't control what color they ultimately become in their heart of hearts, right? Those of you that have like pushed past your 40s know what I'm saying. I haven't had hair in three years and um, I'm letting it grow back out and there's more gray in it right now than I've ever had before. And I can't help it. But don't make a vow that you can't keep. Don't make a vow, I promise by my own head this will happen. Like you can't control what's happening with your head or in your head, right? Like have some humility, all of this belongs to God. And then maybe more importantly, it's not about the specific things you say, it's about the specific kind of person that you are becoming. This is what God really cares about, that Jesus is ultimately concerned about. Like, use what language you want, but be aware that it reflects the actual kind of person you are. Um, those of you that are parents in the room, do you remember a stage with your children around second or third grade where they come home from school and they're starting to discover words that you don't use at home very frequently, right? And they, they come into the door and there's like this hesitation in them to like pitch you this word, but on the same time, they're kind of excited to share it. And it's like, uh, I heard this word, and they maybe kind of have an idea what it means, and they don't think they want to say it, but they kind of want to say it because it sounds kind of exciting to get it out, and it's kind of this dangerous word, and they're sort of wanting to say it, but they know they shouldn't, and then we, have, we as parents sit down with our kids when there are these moments, and we have to think how we're actually going to parent in those awkward moments. Has anybody been there before? Like, how are we going to disciple our kids in these moments? And, and I'm consistently struck with a thought during those moments that in the end, I'm actually less concerned with the specific words that you use because I'm more concerned by the kind of person that my kids are becoming. I want in their heart of hearts for them to be men after God's own heart. Do you need to use swear words or are you going to grow into the kind of person who manages their anger or their frustration in ways that are healthy and actually honor the Lord? And, and so that's the issue. There, there's more than the dangerousness of these words that, that they would speak. Like, are you gonna use your words in a way which honor and respect the people around you, even if 
these people have hurt you, even if they've mistreated you, even if they've frustrated you, or are you gonna use words that actually demean and destroy and tear them down? There's power behind those words. And so that's what I'm concerned about when we talk about dirty words. Are you gonna show that you think before you speak, that, that you can express your frustrations even in a honoring, God-honoring way? Or are you gonna be sort of reduced to crude language because you have nothing better to say and no clearer way to describe what it is you're going through that's taking place in your life? Like, I'm more concerned about the bad heart that will develop if my kids give themselves over to this. I'm concerned about their hearts. And Jesus is saying, you're so caught up on what words you're using and I'm so much more worried about the heart that those words reflect. Because if you think just by invoking the name of God, you can get out of being this promise-keeping kind of person, then you actually lack integrity. You're actually a liar and a betrayer, and that's not what Jesus wants for you. That's not the flourishing life that he paid it all for. Why does Jesus want our yes to be yes and our no be no? Why does he call us to be these promise-keeping kind of people? And again, because it distorts our discipleship when, when we don't do it, when we don't follow through. It doesn't just distort our discipleship. Again, it actually distorts our community when we begin to live into this kind of way. When, when we're all known as a bunch of liars and people that never follow through, it actually impacts the community as a whole. But what happens when we become covenant breakers and people who fail at keeping these promises? What happens when you can't trust that people are actually going to do what they say? Um, even in small promises like, yeah, let's get together for lunch. And you know you're never gonna call them and set that lunch up. <laughs> Anybody guilty of that? At least one of you, that's awesome. <laughs> Honestly, my wife probably knows how frequently I err on this with regards to these things. That I'm the one with the problem and um, Oftentimes, it's like so easy for me to jump in because I want so badly to, for people to think highly of me that I will jump in and say, yes, I'll be there. Yes, I'll do that. Yes, I'll meet you for lunch. And then my follow-through stinks because I don't actually have the time to do it all. And then it breaks down. Like, my yes wasn't actually yes. It would have been better probably for me to say no, right? I mean, I, can I at least give you the permission this morning to say no to things in your life? Anybody want that? <laughs> Like, it's okay. Like, it's actually better to say yes or better to say no than to say maybe or to say yes and not do it. This is also true in marriages, like from people that I've spent time with who have experienced infidelity. Like, I've talked to a number of spouses, and what do they say is the hardest thing to do when it comes to repairing and working on a broken marriage. It's trust. Like even after they've repented and they've turned to the Lord, that trust really, it still takes time to be built. Like every time that person is gone, the spouse is still wondering like what they're doing and what's going on. Are they actually following through with their word? Because there was a time when they didn't follow through with it. And so are they actually gonna be a man or a woman over their word this time? And so it just has the ability to corrode the relationship that we have when we actually aren't trustworthy to one another. Um, again, like I, I know these are areas that I struggle with in my own life. Like I'm always like, sure, let's do that. And I'm always 100% in. 
and then I forget or I, I, I fail to follow through. But the question is like, why does Jesus care? Why does he care? Because when we don't follow through and we don't keep our promises, when our yes is not yes and our no is not no, it erodes trust and it actually distorts our community. It distorts not just our community life together, but it actually distorts our, our witness externally. Like it's difficult for the church to speak credibly and powerfully on marriage when our divorce rate's nearly identical to those that aren't following Jesus. That's hard. That's just the, that's just the reality. It, it, it's hard. Because we can talk about how God values marriage, but the reality is that God actually seems to have no impact on our ability to sustain our own marriages. And that's hard. And the watching world like notices what's going on with the church. And again, sometimes they nitpick, but they're watching us. Like as I talk to people in the community, it's like the church's inconsistency and failure to let our yes be yes and our no be no actually causes them to question whether we really believe the things that we say we believe. And so it's a big deal for the Lord that, that we are just the people that follow through, that let our yes be yes and our no be no. Um, let me give you two examples. Um, there was a research institute several years ago that did a survey um, in 2011 and they did it again in 2016. And they asked one question, this was it. Do you believe that a president who commits an immoral act in private can act morally in their public office as president? That was the question. Does their private life matter as you think about their ability to pursue uh, their public duties? So in 2011, Democrat president, right? In 2011, only 30% of people who claimed to be Bible-believing Christians said it was possible to be immoral privately and still be moral publicly. 30%. By 2016, that stat was 72%. Said it was possibly to be immoral privately and still be moral publicly. Again, like this is, has nothing to do with like Republican or Democrat. Like Bible-believing Christians um, who were surveyed of them, 70% of them said it's really critical that they live a moral life so that they, they, they can trust that they live a moral public life so that they can trust them as a leader, but it really didn't matter what their private life was. But I think it's our inconsistency that has caused so many people to be convinced that it's clear that we don't care what the scripture teaches. That our yes should be yes and our no be no. Non-Christians don't believe we're actually motivated by the principles and values of Jesus. Like, I think you're pursuing something else when our yes is not yes and our no is not oh, when our convictions change based on our own conveniences, when we don't follow the example of this promise-keeping, faithful God who's consistent yesterday, today, and forever. And this causes people to question the witness of the Christian community. But if we're a part of the people of God, we've made these promises together, and we actually should be encouraged to walk them out. But maybe lastly, if failing to be people whose yes is yes and no be no um, disrupts our discipleship in the community of faith, it actually also disrupts our understanding of who God is. And so I, I, I want to suggest this morning that we should value God's reputation more than our own. Is that a deal? <laughs> that it's not so much about our reputation and what we get out of it, but upholding his reputation 
Like, people have a hard time believing that he'll be faithful to his covenant when we so quickly betray our own. And people need a visible example of the kingdom breaking in so they can see faithfulness before them in order to trust in a God they can't see. And to do that, it means, like, we reshape our lives around this. I was working on the sermon this week, and I was really convicted because, again, like, I I struggle in these areas in my life. Oftentimes, don't do a very good job. But I want to suggest two practical things that we could try to pay attention to this week, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here. Um... One, can you pay attention to the casual offers that you make to people? The, the, the sort of implicit promises that you accept. Like, just pay attention to how many of those people you make promises to and how many that you actually intend and, in fact, will follow through with and keep. And I wanted to end on this because I think the, the other side of this is that it's easy to go, well, I just always fail in this area. I'm just a failure and allow sort of the guilt and the shame to be piled on us in this area. But I also want to remind us this morning that we remember our God is actually covenant-keeping God. That the amazing part about his grace is that even when we don't keep it, he does. Amen? That he will follow through. That God does keep his promises. That when we fail, God still follows through. Like, that's the amazing part about the Jesus we serve. But your words matter. They matter. And this isn't even like we're setting ground rules for your life of like what not to do and what to do. And here's all these regulations and these rules we're putting in. It's just simply like before you make a commitment to somebody, can you say yes or no? Can you allow what you tell people to be something that you're gonna follow through with and you still have the freedom to say no, amen? I mean, like, that's the good part about this is that I actually feel like in, in my personality type, the tendency to always lean towards the yes, like, I actually have to step back sometimes and go, um, maybe it's okay for me to say no, even if it means it's gonna bum somebody out because at least I was following through. But your words matter. And I think we live in a day and age where words have been so diluted. Like the yes is not yes and the no is not no. And everything is relative and you find your own yes and your own, your own no and you kind of figure it all out on your own and it just doesn't matter. It's just all kind of bleeds together. And I just want to encourage you this morning that I think it does matter to the Lord. That we are a reflection of a promise-keeping God. A God that will follow through. His yes is yes. And his no is no. And so I'd like to give us a second this morning to sort of reflect on the promises we've made, maybe the promises that we haven't, that followed through with, the ways in which we maybe haven't lived as Jesus called us to. And this morning, I want us to press into the fact that our failure to keep our promises does not prevent God from keeping his promise to us. And in light of that, this should just like, freak us out, man. Like, this is the coolest part. Like, our inability to do what we say and be who we want to be is an invitation to Jesus to say, come draw close to me and allow the Holy Spirit to transform you. And 
we're gonna start doing something different over the next few months. At the end of our gatherings, um, we're gonna start taking a more devoted time of worship towards the end and really utilizing this part to just like seek Jesus, to bear our hearts and our souls to him, to worship him, to honor him. I, I think there hasn't been a revival or a move of God on this earth that hasn't started with prayer and worship. Like it starts with him, acknowledging who he is, who we are in his eyes. And when we talk about leaving here and being his hands and his feet, we're really just an extension of him to the world that he's placed us in. And so I want you guys to stand with me and I wanna pray for us. Some of you guys are like, I hate singing songs. That's totally fine. <laughs> you don't have to sing. But I will encourage you this morning that for the next few songs, here's an opportunity for some of you to just let God have it, like to give him all your praise and your worship, to honor him despite what's going on in your life, despite the difficulties, the setbacks that you're sensing right now in your life, the things you're going through, like make much of him. This is about his reputation. It's about making much of Jesus this morning and we worship him. We worship him with our whole hearts. Um, we're gonna have a handful of people over here and like a dedicated prayer team. So if while we're worshiping, there's just something that God has put on your heart that you need to spend time with somebody and praying through. Maybe you're a couple in this room that just needs God to break in. Maybe you're just a person that's going through a season in your life where it's just like, you need God to break in. We have people that are gonna be over here waiting for you that would love to pray with you. But let's take these next few minutes as we sing Let's give him to Jesus and let's belt it out. Let's give him the honor and the praise he deserves. Amen. And, and moving forward as a church, like it really was on my heart at the beginning of this year that like prayer and worship would be central to who we are and what we do. Not, not about just being a people who do all the right things, but being a people whose hearts are devoted to the king. So this morning, like let's, let's sing to him. Let's worship him. Let's give him the honor Do his name. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your church. Thank you for each soul in this room, God, because I know you see their hearts. You know every hair on their heads. And Jesus, I pray this morning that you literally reach down from heaven and you touch your people. God, there's those in this room that are seeking you for a miracle, Jesus, to show up. Maybe that's physical ailment they have. Maybe that's a, a marital thing. Maybe that's a relational thing. Maybe that's just something, a setback and they're, they're seeking you, God, and they're crying out. And I pray that this morning, Jesus, you'd meet them in this place. God, I pray you'd reveal yourself to them in a very tangible, powerful, and real way. Show up, Jesus. And Jesus, we want to be a church. lifts you up above all other names. We want to be a church, God, that doesn't devote our lives to all the things taking place on this earth, but to the one who's actually control of everything that's taking place on this earth. God, we devote this time to you, and I pray in your name, Jesus, that you would allow us this awesome opportunity to worship you in your name.